This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Could our attachment style the secure, anxious, or avoidant way we interact in relationships help us understand things like why sports teams with talented players consistently lose games or give us insight into why childhood friendships fizzled in the high school years or help predict who will stick with the faith of their youth and who will abandon it. If attachment styles are as influential as we believe, the answer is a resounding yes. Despite being widely accepted in scientific circles for decades, the psychology of attachment is finally getting the attention it deserves as people discover the power of knowing and understanding attachment styles. Attachment science is kind of like a psychological GPS showing where we've been and where we're heading in our relationships with others. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an award-winning journalist and author who's going to be our travel companion and guide on a journey that's going to help us discover how our early childhood experiences create a blueprint for all of our relationships to come. Support for today's show comes from Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you too. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Armin Brott. We'll jump into attachment, the science, and the practicality of the whole thing when our show continues right after this. Hi, this is John Andrasik of Five for Fighting, here for RAD, the entertainment industry's voice for road safety. You know, style is a personal thing, and your lifestyle is your business. But if you take it on the road, it becomes everybody's business. So please, plan ahead. Designate before you celebrate. Friends, don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Peter Lovenheim, who is the author of The Attachment Effect, exploring the powerful ways our earliest bond shapes our relationships and lives. Peter, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So why don't you explain a little bit what attachment is, and then we can get into how important it is, but I think it'd be good to have a, a nice overview of, of it and the various ways of attachment that there are? Well, in the largest sense, attachment is about our relationships and how they're affected by our early upbringing. Uh, John Bowlby was an English psychologist who developed attachment theory about 30 years ago. And his, his primary insight was that because humans are born helpless, uh, we are um, you can say, hardwired at birth to seek out and attach to a reliable caregiver for protection. Usually this is the mom, but it's not a gender-specific role. It can also be the dad, a grandparent, or another adult. But the quality of that early bond, whether it's, uh, it's 
loving and stable or whether it's uh, inconsistent or even absent or disruptive uh, will actually shape the developing brain and influence how that individual will behave and feel about relationships for the rest of his or her life. So we're not quite like ducks where we have the that imprinting thing, but the, the first attachments that we have or the first caregivers that we have do make a, a lasting impression. Right. It's not so much about imprinting as the actual experience the infant and young child has in those first, let's say, 18 months to two years, whether the child feels um, um, safe and secure and that there's a reliable caregiver available to uh, provide comfort and protection. You know, this is a question that comes up quite a bit. Is, is there a difference between bonding and attachment? I think the terms are often used uh, interchangeably, um, but attachment usually refers specifically to, uh, to attachment theory and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and goes to the quality of the bond, let's say. So somebody can be bonded to an adult, um, but but they can may, but it may not produce a healthy attachment. Yeah, this happens, for example, when um, there's been neglect or maltreatment. Um, the child can still bond with the parent, but um, this type of situation produces uh, the worst attachment style, which we call disorganized which is not a place you want you or your children to end up. Right, right. No, because I, 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 I've, I've thought of, when people have asked me that question, I think of bonding as more of a two-way street and that the parent has forms a, a bond with the child as opposed to attachment, which is, much, is more of a one-way street, that looking at it more from the child forming an attachment to the parent. Yeah, um, when we're talking about young children, it's... Uh, I would say that it, we're mostly looking at it from the child to the parent. Yeah. On the other hand, adults can be can have attachment relationships with each other. Right. Um, right. Romantic partners and spouses do that. Sure. And even very close friends can often have an attachment relationship, which can be healthy or not so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you said disorganized is the worst kind of attachment. What does that look like? Well, kids who have disorganized attachment, as I said, they're, they're often dealing with, with, um, with parents or other primary caregivers who are neglectful or maltreating. So this sets up a situation where the, where the, where the young child is looking to the, to the same person for protection, but also being threatened or harmed by that person. And a child who develops this disorganized attachment um, is going to lack social skills and behavioral self-control um, to, that would allow him or her to succeed in school all the way from Head Start and pre-K right through high school. Uh, they may develop oppositional behavior, uh, aggression, hostility, and disorganized attachment uh, also predicts later on uh, delinquency and even violent criminality. Uh, in the general population, fortunately, only about 5% of children develop this, but 
among um, children, as I say, who have been maltreated or neglected, and also among families where, that are stressed by poverty or other factors, um, the, the, the prevalence of, of this attachment type can be up towards of 60 to 80 percent. Wow. And so what, on the other side, what does a, a good attachment look like? Well, secure attachment is what we would all like and what I think as parents uh, we, we would strive to give our children. Um, uh, individuals who come out of early childhood with a secure attachment um, generally find it easy to trust others. They're comfortable with intimacy. Um, they are resilient when faced with life setbacks, such as illness, injury, loss of a loved one. And, and as adults, people with secure attachment um, are generally able to enjoy stable, um, long-term, loving relationships. They really get the big prize. Yeah. But, so I'm wondering, I guess, what, the question that you probably deal with a lot is that I'm sure there are some people who have insecure or disorganized attachments who somehow manage to be okay, and there are probably plenty, plenty of people who have secure attachments who turn out to be wacky uh, or or damaged in some other way or have uh, antisocial types of behavior. So it, it, there, it's not a necessarily a life sentence, is it? Well, let's let's try to uh, unpack those questions. There's a lot in there. Um, to begin with, uh, let me just say that besides secure attachment and disorganized, there are some other um, categories that many people fall into. Um, these are there's two uh, insecure attachment types other than disorganized, and we call these anxious and avoidant. Um, one comes from when, when consistent loving care is inconsistent for the child. Sorry, when, when sensitive caregiving is inconsistent for the young child. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it isn't. This child can develop what's called an anxious attachment. The other type, which we call avoidant attachment, happens when kids pretty much never get sensitive care. Um, so people who grew up with these two types of insecure attachment, anxious and avoidant, you know, they also have pretty good lives. They just have more challenges along the way. They tend to have more trouble with trusting others, um, problems with intimacy. Their relationships may be more of an emotional roller coaster than they'd like them to be. But this is not in any way a sentence to a bad life. It's just that a lot of people come up through childhood with these, these attachment types. To your other question, um, I think you asked, can, can people change their attachment style? Well, no, I was wondering if you are, just because you grow up with a particular type of attachment when you're an infant and a, and a toddler, does that necessarily mean that you have a 100% likelihood of ending uh, right. up a particular way? Right, yeah, um, good, uh, good question there. Um, I mean, the, the answer is no. There are, there are a lot of factors that that feed into the development of personality. Attachment is a big part of it um, and an important part, but it's not everything. So there, there may well be other factors that affect how a personality develops. Having said that, though, I, I'm really going to say, though, that 
that somebody who comes out of early childhood with a secure attachment is really five steps ahead on a lot of this. <laughs> and, and um, you know, things can still go wrong, but generally they're going to they're gonna have an easier ride throughout life in, in many of the most important ways, particularly those that involve relationships. Talking with Peter Lovenheim, who's the author of The Attachment Effect, exploring the powerful ways our earliest bond shapes our relationships and lives. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to keep talking with Peter about some of these things and talk about the, the ways that we form attachments a little bit later on in life and what we can do to overcome uh, deficits if we have them. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my 8th grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Peter Lovenheim, who's the author of The Attachment Effect, Exploring the Powerful Ways Our Earliest Bond Shapes Our Relationships and Lives. And I think we, we did a pretty good job of, of laying out what the, what the issues are or what the various types of attachment look like. Um, how, how does that affect if it, your, it, the type of attachment that you grew up with as a child? How does that affect your parenting skills and abilities? That's an interesting question. Are you, when you say you, are you asking me personally or, oh, or one? Oh, one, yes. Oh, Although okay. if you want to answer that for yourself, that's fine. Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, uh, actually. <laughs> okay. I, I think uh, when I was a young child, my dad was my primary caregiver, and I think I probably came out of early childhood with a somewhat anxious attachment style which is one of the insecure attachment styles. Um, but I think uh, in the long run, it helped me become very sensitive to how we treat children, and it probably made me a better parent. Uh, my, my wife and I raised three children, and glad to say they're all doing well. Um, but, you know, generally, uh, I think people can be be effective parents with with any of these attachment styles, perhaps not the disorganized one we talked about, but but the secure or the anxious or the avoidant. The key for anybody trying to raise kids with a secure attachment, well, there's two. First, I would say consistency. Um, during the first 18 months to two years, somebody has to be a, a consistent primary caregiver it's usually the mom, but it's not a gender-specific role. It could also be the dad, grandparent, or other adult. But consistency is key. And the second thing is what we call um, attunement. It's learning how to correctly read your infant's signals as to what their physical and emotional needs are at the moment, and then responding accordingly. Um, so, you know, one needs to be able to distinguish, for example, between a baby's cries, 
between the I'm hungry cry, I'm tired cry, I'm fine, but I just want to keep playing cry, and the I'm terrified and don't want to be alone right now cry. Um, so to, to read these singles, signals correctly, it's often helpful to be physically close enough, often enough, to our young children to learn how to do that. And some people do that by co-sleeping, uh, having the baby in the same room for maybe the first four months. Others do it by what's called baby wearing, you know, keeping your baby in a sling or carrier rather than a stroller all the time. Um, it's not about being with kids 24-7 or hovering. It's just about being there enough to learn to read their signals. And it's really about paying attention. So, for example, you, you could be wearing your baby in a sling, but if you're looking at your cell phone all the time, you know, you're kind of missing the chance to, to, to read and interpret those signals. Right. So it sounds like that there's definitely a nurture component to this, as if you had to, to look at it as a nature versus nurture kind of thing, that, it, that what we were talking about before, that you're not sentenced to a particular thing. You can be thoughtful, as you have been, by recognizing what you have and figuring out workarounds or figuring out that this might be a, an obstacle, so we better uh, better deal with that now. Uh, right. Some some people do better than that. They can actually change their attachment style during their lifetime. Um, it, this happens in different ways. Sometimes somebody gets lucky as a young adult, maybe, and they have a teacher or a coach who becomes a mentor and provides the kind of security that they didn't get when they were very young. Um, sometimes marrying a person or being in a, in a you know, committed relationship with someone who is secure um, over a period of years can help the other partner become more secure. Uh, work in, ther can it, in can therapy. Can it work the other way around, do you think, though, that if that somebody who is, is secure, who gets involved with somebody who is less than secure, may end up changing the other direction, that, they, that the experience well, is negative and that they end up you know, being... I yes, think. I think it's tr that's possible. I think it's, it's sort of less common, um, partly because a person who's really securely attached, finding him or herself in a, uh, an uh, unhealthy relationship would probably be less likely to stay in it uh -huh. okay. than, for example, somebody who has an anxious attachment um, and craves intimacy and, and just really doesn't want to let go even of a bad situation. Uh, I was going to say, though, that one of the other interesting ways people can sometimes become more secure is through the experience of parenting. Because uh, when we parent mindfully and you know, take it seriously, um, it's an opportunity to kind of uh, think very deeply about our own experiences in childhood, come to understand them better, and through that process, one can sometimes become more securely attached himself. Hmm. That's just fascinating. So talk a little bit about attachment in other areas, and you've got you talk about that a lot in the book about attachment in the workplace or attachment in we've talked a little bit about in in personal relationships, marital relationships. But how does that how does it work in the workplace? Because you're, yeah, it's you're really not fascinating. Let me say before I go to that question. Yeah. Um, uh, in my book, uh, there is a short quiz that any, anybody can take. It's like 30 questions. It takes about five minutes, and it will give you a pretty good sense of your own attachment type. Um, but, but to answer your question about workplace, 
this was really fascinating to research and write about um, because um, work is a, generally a relational activity. I mean, maybe except for writers who work alone a lot. But for most people, going to work involves a lot of relationships with colleagues, with the boss, with customers. So our attachment type is being played out every day in the workplace, influencing how comfortable we are trusting other people, how comfortable we are working as part of a team, or do we prefer working independently and being self-reliant? Um, but one of the very interesting um, pieces of research I just came across uh, shows kind of counterintuitively that the most productive work teams turn out to be not those composed only of people with secure attachment, but with a mix of attachment styles. Because it turns out that people with anxious attachment who are very sensitive to threats um, can, be, can be very effective on a work team um, detecting problems early. And people with what's called avoidant attachment who tend to want to be self-reliant and independent, they also have um, special traits to contribute to a work team. Um, for example, being the first to come up with a solution to a problem. So it turns out that a mix of attachment styles uh, produces the most effective work team. We call it diversity in the workplace. You know, it's a new, new form of diversity. Um, yeah, that's actually getting to be a, a big thing. There's getting to be something, I mean, not necessarily with attachment, but people are recognizing that you may want to have people who don't necessarily have a college education or people from different economic backgrounds or, you know, that, that it's not only about race and, and ethnicity and, and sex. That, exactly. Yeah. So here, here's another factor, you know, uh, attachment that plays into that, um, that push for diversity. Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about the the quiz that's in there in the book. We just we just have a minute left. I want to. Yeah, the quiz asks questions. Um, uh, it asks you to respond to questions based on either your most recent romantic relationship or your romantic relationships in general. And the questions are things like how you know how comfortable do I feel depending on my partner? Um, how much um, do I fear my partner doesn't love me? Mm. Or how confident am I in my partner's commitment? And uh, 30, 30 or so questions like that um, will pretty much give you a, you know, uh, a ballpark um, estimate of your attachment type. Peter Lovenheim is the author of The Attachment Effect, Exploring the Powerful Ways Our Earliest Bond Shapes Our Relationships and Lives. He's also the author of a book called In the Neighborhood and teaches nonfiction writing at the Writers' Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Peter, thanks very much. It's a pleasure thanks to have so you on. Thanks so much for having me. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with the text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, it's only part of the way into the summer, but people are already talking about how this could be one of the hottest ones ever. That means that even though most of us would much rather be outside playing, we'll have to spend a bit more time inside. Here are a few games and one non-game product that will help you chill on those days when it's just too hot to go outside. Build a Bot from Basic Fun. Another STEM-type toy for the younger set. Follow the easy instructions to create a basic unicorn by snapping and clicking together the pieces. Then you customize and personalize your one-horned wonder with stickers. Once you're done, just clap your hands or make some other loud noise to bring your unicorn to life. It'll walk across the floor and make unicorny sounds, whatever those are. Batteries required but not included. It's for ages 5 and up, although kids under 7 might need a little adult help with assembly. Prices vary. It's at basicfun.com. The Flying Sushi Kitchen from Redwood Ventures. Calling all sushi chefs. Players take turns filling orders. All you have to do is pull an order card and put the right pieces of sushi on the plate before time runs out. Oh, wait, did I mention that those sushi pieces are floating in the air and that you have to use chopsticks to grab them? This is a really fun game that's a challenge for even the most adept chopstick user, and there are chopstick trainers for those who need a little help. The first to fill $25 worth of orders wins. It's for one to four players, ages six and up. Prices vary. You can find out more at redwood-ventures.com. Robo Alive Pets from Zuru. Zuru's Robo Alive Pets have been entertaining kids and making parents jump for quite some time. And new attacking T-Rex and crawling spider prove that the company has no intention of stopping anytime soon. The T-Rex is about a thousand times smaller than the real thing, which makes it a little less scary. But incredibly realistic spider with its creepy fuzzy body is about a thousand times bigger than the real thing, which makes it a lot more scary. Batteries required, but not included. It's for ages five and up. Prices vary. You can find out more at robo-alive.zuru.com. Tic-tac-tongue from Yulu. Put on a lizard mask and set up your flies. Then you use the party blower tongue to do what lizards do to flies. Well, sort of. Sounds gross, but it's really fun, and we guarantee that you'll never make it through this game without giggling hysterically. It's for two to four players ages four and up at ulutoys.com is where you can find out more information. The New Air EC-111W Portable Evaporative Cooler from New Air. The more time you spend inside, the more you'll be tempted to run your air conditioner, but that can be really expensive. With the New Air EC-111W, you'll be able to stay cool without the cost. Unlike standard AC, this evaporative cooler, which is sometimes also called a swamp cooler, is all-natural and completely eco-friendly, and it uses the evaporating water and laws of physics instead of chemicals to do its job. It also uses 75% less energy, which makes it about as much electricity as a 100-watt light bulb, and it makes hardly any noise. This cooler covers only about 250 square feet, but since it's compact and portable, you won't have any trouble moving it from room to room. The three-speed fan and remote control ensure that you'll have complete control over the temperature. Works best in hot, dry, in other words, non-humid areas. Costs about $190, but you can get 20% off by using the code MRDAD at checkout. You'll find the link at our website, 
parentsatplay.com. You'll also find a lot more reviews of a wonderful array of toys and games and activities to do with your kids all year round at parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Warren Farrell thinks there's a boy crisis. And if you're not sure whether he's right, all you need to do is turn on the television or open up your favorite newspaper or your browser and check the news. There is something going on with boys, and most of it is not good. There's a crisis of education. Worldwide, boys are 50% less likely than girls to meet basic proficiency in reading and math. There's a crisis of mental health. ADHD is on the rise, and as boys become young men, their suicide rates go from equal to girls to six times that of young women. There's a crisis of fathering. Boys who grow up with less involved dads are more likely to drop out of school, drink, do drugs, become delinquent, and end up in prison. There's a crisis of sexuality. Sex is a minefield for our sons. They're bombarded with mixed messages, afraid of being either too sensitive or not sensitive enough. And it's a crisis of purpose. Boys' old sense of purpose, being a warrior, a leader, or a sole breadwinner, is fading. Many bright boys are experiencing what you might call a purpose void. They feel alienated, withdrawn, and addicted to immediate gratification. So what can we do about this boy crisis? Well, the first step is to grab something to write with because you're not going to want to miss a moment of this show where we're going to be talking about the boy crisis, what it is, and how to overcome it. All that starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio, take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. 
Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Warren Farrell, who's the co-author with John Gray of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Warren, thanks for joining us here. Thanks for coming back on the show. You were here a couple of years ago. Yes, uh, look forward to it. Let, let's talk about this boy crisis because it's something I think that people are aware of, that there's something going on with boys, but it's... In many ways, it's not terribly politically correct to talk about boys being in crisis as opposed to boys being the cause of a crisis. Uh, how, how do you lay this out, and then we'll, we'll get into the specifics. What's going on you know, with boys? When I was going around speaking on some of the foreign translations of other books, um, I kept hearing in Japan and places, countries, different countries, that, you know, for the teachers especially, there are boys, you know, the boys in my class are doing much worse than the girls in my class. And so that all started to sink in, and I started to, you know, wonder what was behind that. And then I found that in all 60 of the largest developed nations, uh, boys were falling behind girls in almost every single subject. And then I started looking at their physical health and, um, and their, you know, the fact that their sperm counts were, were dropping, their IQs were dropping. <clears throat> and started looking at their mental health and looked at the suicide rate of boys in early 20s being um, almost six times that of what girls in their early 20s are experiencing. <clears throat> and so I started to, you know, that was about a dozen years ago, and I started to investigate that. So the last 11 years I've been researching, you know, first of all, is there a boy crisis? And found out resoundingly that there is. <clears throat> and then if so, what are the causes of it? And identified about nine causes. And then, um, but one of the causes just stood out profoundly, and that was that um, the boy crisis basically exists among um, children of divorce who, after divorce, do not have a significant amount of father involvement, at least equal amount of father involvement. And then also in, um, in families where the mother had children uh, without being married, and usually that led to children not being involved significantly with their dad after two to three years. Well, when the, when the children were involved with their dad, either after divorce or after um, a, a mom had the children um, without being married, uh, the children did reasonably well if certain other conditions were met. Um, but when the children did not have a significant amount of father involvement, that is when they did worse in every single one of more than 70 areas, even wow. when you control for socioeconomic variables like, you know, poverty or, you know, location and, you know, other other variables like right. that. Right. You know, it's one of these causation versus correlation things. It, it, in some ways, and I say, I wonder, I, I mean, I'm familiar with, with some of the research uh, that, that you're that you're talking about, it just always makes me wonder what is it exactly about the dad that that's happening there. I mean, is it in in which we know? I think in in inner city communities where there is a lot of fatherlessness, that kids are growing up without under an understanding of what it really is to be a man, as opposed to beating somebody up to be a man. Yes. Uh, but it's it's got to it's got to be more than that. What is it about it, what dads is, are doing? 
I was able to identify 10 different ways that dad's parent versus mom's parent, and almost everybody understands the positive value of mom parenting, of you know, the nurturing process, the protecting, the, the vigilance, and all of that gives a child an enormous amount of, of security, feeling that they're loved and attended to and watched out for. Um, so uh, when, uh, but, but I also found that dads did things, I'll just take one example because of our time, like roughhousing. And, you know, mom would often look over and see the dad roughhousing, and in and, and the, and the back of her mind she's saying, oh, I feel like I have only one more child to monitor here. <laughs> and, um, and sooner or later, there, you know, the, the, um, uh, he's, let's say he's roughhousing with um, uh, his son and maybe a, a neighbor's uh, boy that is uh, younger than the son and say the, the daughter who is younger than the son. And, so, uh, and the mother is just predicting that sooner or later something's going to go wrong and one of the kids is going to start to cry or they're going to hit their heads against each other or they're going to hit their heads against the, the dining room table and he's not not far enough away from the dining room table, doesn't he see that? And yet the mother's also seeing, you know, that, gee, the kids seem to be having fun. Okay, I'll try to keep these feelings to myself. And um, and she uh, and that and so and sooner or later, about a 99.5% chance that the children will, in fact, hit their heads against each other or something like that, you know, or hit their heads against a, um, uh, a dining room table um, or coffee table, and then also, um, or one will feel left out or pushed aside, and they'll start crying and be really upset. And uh, and then when the child, when that happens, um, she's really upset at herself for not interfering sooner. Um, and then she's astonished that the dad just continues, the, you know, just, you know, sort of um, uh, just glosses over the process and, and then recontinues the rough housing. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. don't you get it? <laughs> she's saying. And then she's feeling guilty because she didn't intervene sooner. And so, but what, what, what is happening there are so many important things just in that rough, house, rough housing scenario. So, for example, the dad is, um, is, is saying oftentimes to the older boy, um, you know, that was not okay that you just, you know, stopped, knocked, you kept your sister away from um, getting equally involved, you know, or getting involved. He doesn't right. get equally involved, but just getting involved, you know, coming in there like that. And you pushed her out of the way. That's not okay, Jimmy. And you did the same thing with, uh, you know, with Johnny from across the street. That's not okay either. So you do that anymore, and the roughhousing will stop for everyone. So now let's just unpack that scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, first yeah, well, of all, it's empathy is is partly. Yeah, that's a... that's exactly right. I mean, the 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 child, the father is teaching the chi- children to n- not only think of the brother and the, uh, the the you know the boy across the street and the sister, and, but he's also requiring that child to think of his brother and uh, his his sister and. Um, and the kid from across the street. And if he doesn't think of them uh, adequately, the roughhousing will stop. The roughhousing will stop for everyone. And the and so let's um, and and so that requ- means that the boy the the boy starts learning that if I don't um, if I don't pay attention to um, not pushing my sister out of the way or the boy across the street out of the way um, and thinking of their needs. I'm going to get punished, but also I'm going to be responsible for the other kids being punished too, which means I'm going to, I'm going to get social pressure on me for spoiling the fun for everybody in addition to being a bully. And so bullying doesn't pay or pushing aside doesn't pay. Thinking of others does pay. Mm-hmm. And so now the next question is, what, you know, 
do dads enforce that boundary? And the answer is dads have a tendency to enforce boundaries, to say, I, I said don't do that, any of that pushing, and you did, and therefore there is no more roughhousing. And so, um, and so the kids are learning all along what is the boundary between uh, what is going too far and what is having fun. And, exactly. and and they're getting that from experience. And so when the kid, one kid hits his head or her head against the other, from the dad's perspective, that's the kids learning when they've gone too far, not by a lecture, but by experience. And so, but the dad, but the mom isn't at fault for not understanding this because dads don't read that many books on how to, how to do the roughhousing and what's the value of roughhousing. So dads don't explain that to moms. Yeah. And moms can't, moms can't hear what dads don't say. You know, there was another another thing I remember, and you probably came across Ross Park when you were doing your research, one of one of my mentors in the fatherhood field, and he was telling me about uh, experiments that he had done when he was first starting off in the in researching about dads, and, and another area that dads are, are different than moms, and, and, and I think you said this before, it's like different, equally important, but, but different, is that when, when dads are out with a little toddler, that they they would watch and see when the kid falls down who picks him up and after how long and they'd find that the dads would wait a couple seconds more than the moms did and the message there was very clear which is i know you can get up and you can mm-hmm. you can do this you you know you, you, and it it really is giving it seems so simple but it is telling kids that they have the power to get up off the ground and help themselves that's, and uh, that's they, absolutely right was, I had a little, little exchange with, with my daughter about something similar to this. We were walking down the street near a park, and there was a girl who just came running out. She skidded, fell flat on her face, and she gets up. She looks around. There isn't an adult. There isn't a mom. There isn't a dad. There's nobody there. And she just gets up, and she goes back and runs into the park. And mm-hmm. I said to my daughter, she's like, you know what would have happened if her mom or dad would have been there. She would have been screaming and crying and and yet we'd never have heard the end of it. Um, talking with Warren Farrell, who's the co-author with John Gray of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into a lot more specifics about what's going on with boys and a little bit about what uh, what's going on with moms as well. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Son, we got to talk about drinking. I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't, yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all, before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Warren Farrell, who's the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Uh, I want you to talk about, since you, you spent some time there talking about what dads are doing differently and uh, moms are not being quite aware of it, but what, what is it that moms are doing and what important role do they have in the proper upbringing of a boy? Yes, We say that moms unconditionally love their children, and they do, and of course, what is oftentimes, dads tend to be far more conditional in their approval, but not more unconditional in their love. Um, and But because moms are always sort of much more likely to be there to protect and to be nurturing and to be vigilant, um, it gives a child an underlying feeling of being loved, cherished, taken care of, and secure. And that is uh, invaluable. Um, and fortunately, it's v- almost all moms remain involved, even if there's a separation. If a, if a mom is a, a working mom, um, she is almost always attentive to coming back for recitals, coming back on time to take care of the, ch- the children within the framework of her ability to do that economically. And so that's, um, that's, and that is almost universal. Um, with the fathers, what, what the dads do is much less well understood. And, and the solution for positive parenting is understanding enough about what dads do to have a, a checks and balance, what I call checks and balance parenting, where you have the mother and father talking with each other about any single problem that comes up with the children, um, working on the unique characteristics of the child compared to brothers or sisters, and then saying, what is a, you know, what is a solution we can come to that balances that mother style with dad style? And so if I were to go back to that roughhousing example, the next aspect of dad's style that I mentioned briefly was dads will tend to sort of um, not, if, if the child is not regarding and paying attention to his sister and being empathetic, uh, the father won't just repeat, will be much less likely to repeat the process of saying, Jimmy, I told you this, Jimmy, I told you this, Jimmy, I told you this, uh, which his mom is more likely to do, but he's more likely to, after just one warning or maybe two at the most, just say, um, okay, I gave you the warning, now there's no more roughhousing. So what dads then tend to do is enforce their boundary, the boundaries. Mm-hmm. When boundaries are enforced, that requires children to have the, mo- the single most important ingredient to success, which is postponed gratification. The child has to look at, um, I, I'd be more gratified here to get rid of my sister and get rid of the kid and, and win this rough, you know, and be, a, be in the best position in the roughhousing to, to turn my dad over and defeat him in, in the wrestling match. And um, the, um, uh, whereas when, da- when dad enforces that boundary, the child has to focus on doing what it needs to do, which is being empathetic to the other kids that are roughhousing with me. And all of this is when they're highly excited and energized, and that's called by psychologists emotional intelligence under fire. But the most important thing that the children are learning is to focus on doing what they must do in order to get what they want, more roughhousing, more excitement. Right. And so, and that is, and that, and that is, so when children are raised primarily by dads, uh, we find that only 15% of them have ADHD. When children are read, uh, raised primarily by moms, it's 30%. 
Mm-hmm. And so dads need to communicate that their requirement of the child to do what she or he needs to do without excuses yeah. is part of what gives them the ability to finish their homework, part of what gives them the ability to practice all the drills that are necessary to be a sports hero. Um, and so then they start feeling better about themselves in school when they have that postponed gratification. Right. Um, and you know, that I, I, I want. I just want to make sure we're gonna. We're. It's. It's so interesting, and I want you to come back. I think to talk more about this. But you mentioned ADHD, mm-hmm. and that that got me thinking about mental health generally, because I think you can make some connections between ADHD and mental health. And I'm wondering if the dads are, if the children who have dad time are less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD because the dads are saying. Well, this isn't ADHD. This is just normal kid behavior, as opposed to the moms who are saying this kid is running around like a nut. Or, you know, similarly to I, what I have always thought and has been confirmed somewhat, I think, at least anecdotally, that when when there are more female teachers, that boys tend to be diagnosed more than girls with ADHD. And so, so talk a little bit about that, but also the issue of boys in mental health and how the the way that we've constrained acceptable emotions for boys pretty much as anger um, and and how our inability to diagnose what's really going on with them is contributing to the overall boy crisis. Yes, I mean, there's so many. So with ADHD, um, usually it's female teachers, absolutely. But they do see, the female teachers do see a much greater amount of fidgetiness, a much greater amount of um, the children, your boys not being able just to um, pay attention in class and without bothering somebody or passing a note or, you know, sort of making some type of um, physical um, gesture to, to get somebody else's attention. And so I think it's very accurate that boys, uh, compared to girls, um, tend to um, manifest more ADHD. However, the school system has many, many ways of preventing that. One is more recess, which has, recess has been cut back a great deal. Um, and, so, and we now know from the Centers for Disease Control that the more ch- time that children spend doing recess up to a certain point, the more effective it is on connecting the neurons and the synapses in their brain so that the, so that the recess time is actually more effective for studying effectively for a test mm-hmm. than, yeah. than the same amount of time is for stu- uh, if it was put into studying alone. The schools have completely missed this boy-friendly way of both helping the boys and also helping um, students in general succeed. Another example is vocational education, is that um, that boys who are that in that fidgety mode and have ADHD are far more likely to drop out of school. When boys drop out of school um, in high school, uh, the, the unemployment rate is uh, more than 20% in their early 20s. Whereas in Japan, there's an understanding that boys have this type of physicality. Uh, they need to learn how to do something, not just study academically. And so, the, the uh, and so about 25% of Japanese students are in uh, are in vocational education, mostly males. And when they graduate, 99.6% of them are able to get jobs right away. Wow. So you have this one one six tenths of one percent unemployment rate versus 20% unemployment rate, and mm. most people. People listening here do not need a lesson on the connection between unemployment and, and committing crime and getting into having your testosterone channeled uh, ineffectively is, is one of the most um, 
gr the greatest predictors of destructive behavior, having it channeled effectively by presence of dad and by right. boundary enforcement is one of the greatest predictors of, of, of constructive behavior. We've only got about a minute left, but I do want you to touch a little bit more on, on the, the mental health aspect of it and how we're, we're missing signs of what's going on with boys. And uh, if we're missing the signs, we're missing the opportunity to help them, and that, which means we're missing an opportunity to stop some potentially catastrophic event from happening. Absolutely. Here's the slippery slope um, from that n not finishing the homework, not getting focusing on the um, on the being able to become uh, proficient at whatever your dream is, uh, in sports or whatever, um, then the, the boy often feels like the teachers are honoring the other students more than him. The girls, the boys, boy peers are respecting the other students. Girls, and when it comes to boy-girl time, girls are not interested in dating losers, so they ignore them. The boy then withdraws into uh, video games or porn, and that makes him feel more and more isolated, except by virtual friends that he doesn't have much contact with. Uh, that leads often to depression and worst case scenarios to suicide, uh, obviously the in, <laughs> manifestation of an enormous mental health issue. And in worst case scenarios, we now know that almost all mass shooters have a lack of father involvement and a lack of postponed gratification. And, um, they, and also almost all ISIS recruits, boys and girls, have a lack of father involvement and a lack of postponed gratification. Wow. So in 30 seconds, what do we do? Um, we get, well, A, we get dads more involved. We honor dads. We develop a whole concept called father warrior. We allow um, the, the society as a whole needs to communicate to moms what the dad contribution to parenting is and how essential he is. Second, if, if a, you're a single mom and you cannot in any circumstance get it, your, the father involved, get your ch child involved in Cub Scouts, get in Boy Scouts. If you're faith-based oriented, get them involved in a faith-based community where they're talking and sharing their feelings with other boys their age. Uh, all this is important for girls, um, but we find consistently that when families break up and there's disconnection, um, boys um, suffer more than girls, contrary to our previous uh, understanding. Warren Farrell is the co-author with John Gray of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you. It's a pleasure. Always wonderful to talk with you, Armin. Before we go, a special thanks to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the armed forces, veterans, and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.